0: If you, have your, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Kings chapter 5. We'll be looking at a few verses there and a few verses in other places this morning. We live in a world that seems to be very wicked and evil. We see people that are now calling good evil and evil good. People are turning away from God as opposed to turning to God. And even in the religious world, people are not content to follow God's plan. People want something different. And as a result of that, we see substitutions of things that are not divinely authorized by God Himself. I want to talk about people that do not accept what God's plan is. Those that are displeased with God and go about seeking their own way. In Second Kings chapter 5, we find there an example for us of Naaman. The Bible tells us there in verse one I'm not going to read all of those verses for us, but in chapter 5 and verse one we find where Naaman was the host of the, the host of the army or captain of the host of the Syria king of Syria. He was a great man, the Bible says. he was a ma- to his master, he was honorable. He was a man of valor, and he did a lot of good things. And I think that when you look at Naaman and you look at his family, they were good people. I think they tried to do what was right. But we see there in that verse, he had all of those good qualities. Honorable, great, man of valor, but... And sometimes you hear that with a husband or wife that is talking about, I have a wonderful wife, she's a good housekeeper, she's a she's a good wife, she's kind, but. Or that husband, he's a good worker, he does all the things he's supposed to. He's a good husband, but. And then that but comes out there, and it's not something that's good. And in Naaman's case, that but meant that he had leprosy. And if you remember when Don Iverson was here a few weeks ago, he had a picture on the screen of someone who had leprosy. And that individual's fingers had been eaten away on his hand, and half of his foot or part of his foot was eaten away by leprosy. And that's what leprosy does. It destroys your physical body. So Naaman had leprosy, and something that no one would want to have, including Naaman. And in verse two, there was a maiden that had been carried away captive from the land of Egypt or land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And in verse three, she tells Naaman's wife about the prophet that is in Samaria that he would recover him of his leprosy. And so in verse five, the king of Syria sent Naaman with a letter to the king of Israel, stating, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. If you read those verses, you find that the king of Israel kind of gets upset. Like, what's he doing? What kind of, what's he trying to do? Am I God that I can heal him of his leprosy? Well, Elisha intervenes, and Elisha says, send Naaman to me. And so Naaman goes, and he goes to Elisha, and he takes his letter, but he didn't just have a letter. He also had a large sum of gold and silver that he took with him and ten changes of clothing. He took those, obviously, as payment. And so he went to Elisha's house. And the man of God doesn't even come outside. It tells us in verse 9 of Second Kings chapter 5, And so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots, her chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. Here Naaman is given a simple solution, a simple way to have his leprosy cleansed, to wash it away. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed. Now, Naaman's kind of upset. He doesn't like what has been done. He thought that when he showed up that Elisha would come out and wave a magic wand and that his leprosy would be cured. He'd speak some words and the leprosy would be gone. And so we learn in verse 11. It says, But Naaman was wroth and sent away and went away and said, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Now God's plan through Elisha was go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Simple. But if you read the rest of the story, you realize that Naaman says, there's cleaner rivers that I could go dip in. Why can't I go dip in those? And so he's angry. He doesn't like what God has to say. He doesn't like God's plan. And really, that's like people today. When God tells us what to do, sometimes we don't like His plan. We would like to come up with something else, something that we think is better. Just like Naaman thought that the rivers that he wanted to go to were cleaner and better. You can read the rest of the story... And you will find that when he was finally convinced by another servant that, you know, if you were told to do something great, you would have went and done it. But something as simple as dipping in the Jordan. Why would you go do that? And so he goes and he dips in the Jordan River seven times, and he's cleansed of his leprosy. Here we see an example of someone... <clears throat> who was dissatisfied with God's arrangements. Today, people are displeased with God's way. And many people today substitute what they would like, their own human opinions, for what God has told us to do. I hear things like, Oh, I don't think God cares how I worship as long as I worship. That's all that matters. As long as I'm doing something that feels good in my heart, God's going to accept it. Well, Jesus had something to say about that. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9, he says, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. A simple example of that is Jesus says, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So that's what Jesus says. We see that example used throughout the book of Acts where people were told what they needed to do. They believed or they were to repent and confess, but they always were told that they needed to be baptized. Why? For the remission of sin. But today, what do you hear? You hear people say, well, just pray this prayer. And if you pray this prayer and accept Jesus into your heart, then you're saved. But that's not what the Bible says. But so people aren't happy with God's plan of salvation, and so they come up with their own ideal, which is their own doctrine. And Jesus said, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. And so when we, like the Pharisees, add things to God's word or take away things from God's word, our worship is vain. But it's not only our doctrines, but it's also the practices that we need to have. Today we realize the Bible teaches that we are to sing and make melody in our heart. And so as we worship God, we sing. We don't play instruments because there's no authority in the Bible for instruments to be used in worship to God. God said sing, and so we sing. But yet when you go to other places, you can see where they use instruments, and even some in the Lord's church are starting to introduce instruments into their worship. Not pleased, once again, with what God wants us to practice. In Leviticus chapter 10, of verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, it says there that the Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them their censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So not only is doctrine important in our worship to God and the things that we practice, but the things that we practice in our worship are also important to God. We don't have the authority to change it. And we may not like it, but I've had people that will say, oh, I think uh, instruments would improve your singing. That's not what God said. God said sing. He didn't say sing pretty. He didn't say it had to be all harmonized. He just said Sing. And so that's what we're commanded to do. And so we don't dance and we don't do all kinds of other things in our worship. We do exactly what we see in the New Testament that they did in their worship. Why? Because those things are important to God. And if we're not happy with God's plan, then we need to change our way of thinking. Oh, I'll hear people say, God doesn't care if I assemble with the saints as long as I pray and read the Bible. That's all that matters. I've visited people that have stopped going to church and I'll say something about them forsaking God. And they say, oh, I haven't forsaken. I've not turned away from God. I still pray and I still read my Bible. Well, that may be true, but the Bible teaches us that we're to gather with the saints, that we're to worship our Lord on the first day of the week. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, It tells us not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so God wants us to assemble together. Why? So we encourage to provoke each other into good works, to do the right thing. We come together to build each other up. Think about us. As Christians, we're out in the world every day and we're getting beat up by the evil things that are out there. And we come together to worship. To worship our God and it should build us up and strengthen us as we assemble. And so God wants us to come together for a reason. And when we assemble, we are to worship in spirit and in truth. The doctrine must be correct and the things that we practice must also be correct. Don't be displeased with God's ways. If you're unhappy with God's ways, then there's something wrong with you in your heart that you need to change. Let's look at another example Another example is found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, there was a young man that came to Jesus. He was rich, he was a ruler, and he was young. And the question that he asked Jesus Master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, that's a good question. That's the perfect question that someone should ask. It's an important question. And it can be asked in various different ways. What do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Different ways that we can ask that same question. But it's an important question. And so Jesus gives them an answer. Jesus says, If thou wilt enter into life, in verse 17, keep the commandments. Now, you remember that Jesus lived under the old law, and so they were following the Ten Commandments, and so that's what Jesus is telling him to do. And so he asked in verse 18, which ones? And then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus lists off some commandments that he needed to be following. And then in verse 20, the young man says, All of these have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? This young man was sounds like he did a lot of good things. He followed the law just like he was supposed to. But yet, even in his own mind, he thought there was something that was missing. He went to Jesus and asked that important question. And then he realizes that there's something that may be lacking yet. And so Jesus says in verse 21, If thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. When I read that and looked over it uh, as I prepared this lesson, I thought, you know, Jesus didn't say sell all that you have and go give everything to the poor. He just says sell it and give to the poor. But then He says, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and then come follow me. This young man who asked the perfect question was displeased with the answer that Jesus gave. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 22, the scripture says, And when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He didn't like the answer that he had been given, he was displeased with God. He was guilty of something. He was guilty of covetousness. The Bible tells us as Christians that we are to mortify covetousness. In Colossians 3 and verse 15, it says, "...mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry." We wouldn't bow down to an idol. I don't know anybody in here that would worship an idol. But here in this passage of Scripture, we see where covetousness is equated to idolatry. In other words, we're putting something up in front of God that can cause us to be lost, and we're holding on to that as opposed to holding on to God. Now, this rich young ruler had a lot of things, and obviously he didn't want to let go of those things. And I wonder how many of us realize that God has demanded things out of our lives, but yet we don't want to give it, and so we go away sorrowful. People today are displeased with what the Bible teaches or what the Lord requires out of us. For example, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. We're supposed to put God first in our life and His righteousness should be first in our lives every day of our lives. But how many of us allow family, friends, work, all kinds of entertainment, whatever it may be, to get in the way or get in first place ahead of God? That God is number one unless there's something else that comes along that we feel is more important. And so we turn away from God. We don't listen to that that command. We don't keep Him first. And as Christians, God wants us to have Him first in our life, and His righteousness first in our life. And and it's not just today, because it's Sunday, but it's every day of our life. God expects us to put Him first and His righteousness first. In Proverbs chapter three and verse five, Jesus, we're told there: Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thy own understanding. You know, it's easy to trust in God when everything's going well, but sometimes when those struggles come, when those difficulties come, do we trust God to take care of those things? How many times have we prayed to God, left our burdens at His feet, you know, we pray and we we talk to Him about our problems, but then we pick them up after it's over, and we carry them around with us again. Because we have to solve the problem, God's not going to help us. We don't trust Him. And sometimes it's like that rich young ruler we put our trust in those possessions, in that money, in those those things that we have. We can look at kings in Israel in the Old Testament that many times when things were tough, they trusted God, but then when they were wealthy and well secured, they turned their back on God, and we do the same thing sometimes. We don't want to put him first in our lives unless it's our choice, unless it's easy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they may be, may not be high minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. God blesses us. He's blessed us with material things, but how many of us trust in those material things more than we trust in God? We need to trust God. And lean not on our own understanding. Sometimes it's hard. It's not easy to live the Christian life. There's another example that is found in chapter 27. And that is those who crucified Christ. They were displeased with Him. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 1, it says And when the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. It's kind of amazing when you know the story and you know that Jesus came into Jerusalem in a triumphant entry into the city. Who would have thought that within days or hours that He would be put to death? But that's exactly what happened. And we see these individuals that took counsel to put Him to death. And in verse 18, Pilate says, for He knew that for envy they had delivered Him. They knew He knew that Jesus had not done anything that was worthy of death. But yet he knew why they their motive for bringing Jesus or wanting him put to death and bringing him to have him crucified. And in verse twenty of that same chapter, is what it says: "But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus." Pilate thought he had a situation <clears throat> that he could handle that he would allow them to choose Barabbas instead of Jesus, and that Barabbas would be the one that would be crucified and Jesus would be let go. But that didn't work out the way he hoped it had. In verse 21 it says, "...And the governor asked and said unto them, "'Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you?' And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said unto them, "'What shall I then do with Jesus, which is called Christ?' And they all said unto him, "'Let him be crucified.' And the governor said, "'Why?' What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Why? Why did they want to crucify Christ? They had seen the good things that he had done. They had heard the message that he came to proclaim. Why did they want him dead? Why were they envious? Why did they want to crucify him? The answer is quite simple. Because they were displeased with His message and they were displeased with who He claimed to be. They were looking for a Messiah, but not Christ. They didn't want to recognize Him as that Savior. And so they were displeased with what God had sent. What about those who crucify Christ again today? In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, <clears throat> beginning. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they have crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. Here we see individuals that had obeyed the gospel, they heard the good message, they knew what their hope was, but then they went back into the world. And those things that motivated them to obey the gospel to begin with meant nothing to them now. And sometimes we hear what God expects out of us and we don't like the message. And people obey the gospel and they go back into the world because the world is more important to them. It pulls them back as opposed to struggling and fighting to do what's right in their own hearts, in their own minds. And like the rich young ruler that we talked about earlier, instead of changing, they go away sorrowful. That's what happens to people today. They turn away from God, turn away from the truth, because they're not pleased with the message that He has. And so we want to talk about some of the individuals or some of the groups that are displeased with God. But before we do that, I want to remind us of Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, where it says, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The Bible plainly tells us here, Jeremiah is telling us that we can't direct our own selves. We can't get ourselves to heaven. We need God's help. We need God's help every day of our lives. It's not in man to direct his own steps. And then in Proverbs chapter 14, and verse 12, he says there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You think about people that are following a false doctrine. And Jesus said, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. You think about people that are following those doctrines. It may seem right, but it's going to end up costing them their soul. We don't want to be in that situation. We don't want that to happen to us. So today, there are many that are displeased with God's way. And they choose their own way. One of those groups of people would be atheists. Atheists are displeased with God. They're displeased with the very thought of God. But the Bible tells us that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. That's foolish to say that there is no God. Why? Because you can look out there in nature and you can see that there has to be something. I've said it a hundred times or more. It takes more faith to believe in evolution and that this stuff just happened than it does to believe that God created it. The Bible tells us in in Psalms 19, and verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. We look out there in nature and we can see that all these things are are what they are because God created them to be what they are. And that's the evidence. And we can look at other things in Scripture that were written and shown before man even had knowledge of some of those things that prove that it's divine, that it came from God. But yet people don't want to listen to those things. And so it's easier to say that there is no God because if there is no God, then there is no standard that I have to live by. I can accept whatever standard I want as opposed to accepting God's standard. Another group would be the modernist who is displeased by the inspiration of the Scripture. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That means that all scripture is God breathed. We have what God wants us to have. In Second Corinthians chapter two, verses nine through thirteen. As it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is in God, that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God, <clears throat> which things also we speak, not in the words which, with, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual What's that passage of Scripture telling us? It's telling us that God has revealed what He wants us to know. God has revealed how He wants us to conduct our lives. God has revealed how He wants us to worship. God has revealed what He wants us to know in order to be saved. God has revealed where we're going if we're faithful and where we're going if we are unfaithful. It's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that has guided us through that written Word that helps us to see all of those things that God wants us to see. Man didn't write it on their own. Man wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, "...knowing this first, and no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." And so we have God's Word that guides us. But there are many people, modernists today, who do not want to accept just the Bible. They want something more. They want to add to. And there are some religious groups that we want to talk about that are displeased with the Bible as being sufficient and complete. That they want more too. They want uh, creeds and manuals and and catechisms and many different uh, documents that will help them to be more faithful, they think. But if, it contain, if any of those manuals or doctrines or any of those things contain more than the Bible, they have too much. And if they don't have what the Bible contains, then they've got too little. And if they contain exactly what the Bible has, then why have it to begin with? All we need is the Bible. In Jude verse one, or Jude chapter one verse three, it says, "Beloved." when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the coming salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude is telling us that that faith, that faith that we have, that faith that comes from God's Word, has been delivered. We don't need to change it. There's no need to change it. In 2 John 1, verse 9, "...whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrines of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrines of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son." The Bible tells us what we need to do in order to be saved. Many months ago when I did a sermon on the sinner's prayer, one of the things that I discovered is that there were people... That who, who brought about the sinner's prayer, who said that that's just a new way that we have today, that the apostles had their way, and now we're more up-to-date and we can change it, that the, the apostles had to do it that, that way. And we don't have to do it this way. So they teach the doctrines of men. And not only would our worship be vain when we're telling people how to be saved, which is contrary to God's will, our worship would be vain, But what did it say in that verse, verse 9? That if we don't abide in the doctrines of Christ, then we're not abiding even in Christ. We're not in Christ at all. And so when you hear people say something contrary to what God's Word says in how to be saved, they're not abiding in the doctrines of Christ. And so they're in a lost condition. And it was Jesus who said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus was the author of that. He's the author of eternal salvation. He is our Savior when we obey His command. And someday He will be a judge. Our judge on the day of judgment. And I ask, when we're judged, are we going to be judged by the words of Jesus? Or by some man's opinion? or some man's own doctrine. There's another group that aren't pleased with God's way, and that's denominations. Denominationalism isn't pleased with God's oneness in His plan. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane, beginning in verse 20, "...neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word, that they may be one as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us." that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus is saying that we all all of us should be one. Now, you think about you can go to any church in this in this community, all different ones, and many of them are going to have different ways to get to heaven. Is that the oneness that Jesus is talking about? Is that what he's praying for? In fact, think about it. If you had no knowledge of the Bible, if you had no knowledge of Christianity, and you wanted to learn about Christianity, which church would you pick? I think it would be very difficult for someone to figure out what church is the right church with all the different denominations that are saying different things that you must do in order to be saved, in order to teach what you need to do to keep saved, or even if you could be lost after you are saved. God's word is a seed that seed when it's planted is going to bring forth the same thing all the time it's going to bring forth the same church not different denominations but the same church paul addressed that problem in first corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 10 when he said now i beseech you brethren by the name of our lord jesus christ that ye shall speak the same things and that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you by brethren, or my brethren by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Paulus, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is addressing the problem that we have today. People will call themselves after some name, some man-made name, their, their denomination, the Lutherans, they call themselves Lutheran after Martin Luther. People will follow the Pope. People follow some doctrine that they have in their uh, beliefs. And so they follow different things, and Paul is saying, no, we shouldn't follow man. We should follow Christ. And notice what Jesus said to that rich young ruler. Go sell what you have, give to the poor, lay up treasures in heaven, and come follow Me. Notice Jesus didn't say, go follow Peter, go follow Paul. He said, go follow Me. And that's who we need to be following. And that's what the denominational world, would it would cease to exist if everybody would follow what Jesus tells us to do. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, it says, Endeavoring to keep the unity, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, even as we're called, one hope in our calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. That tells us that there's one body. That one body is the church. Now the religious world will have you to believe that everybody makes up that church that all these different denominations make up that that, that, uh, that church. But if we're not teaching all if we're not all teachings the doctrines of Christ the way God wants them taught, then that's not the church. The Bible says there's one church. That church is the body of Christ, there's one spirit that gives life and guides us and directs us in our everyday lives. In that body, there's one hope of our calling. There's only one calling to follow Jesus and one hope of heaven, of a home in heaven that results in that calling. There's only one Lord, as it tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, when it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. There's only one faith. Now, one faith has to be based and regulated upon the Word of God. Because Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 tells us, "...so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God." And there's only one baptism, one burial in water, whose, when our heart is penitent, we rise up to walk in newness of life. And there's only one God and Father of all who is a Creator and Protector and Giver of all things. That's the oneness that God talks about. We all should be speaking and teaching the same thing. But we don't. Why is that? Is it because we're displeased with God? When you look at the history of some of the denominations, you see it's because of something that was taught from the Bible that they didn't like. So they go off and they start something else. Really, don't be displeased with what God says. You see, God knew... That man would be displeased, and warns us of changing his will. In Deuteronomy chapter four and verse one or verse two, "He shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you." Here we see that God is warning the children of Israel not to add to His commandments, not to take away from them, but to do exactly what He's told them to do. And the same is true for us. We're to do exactly what God wants us to do. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6-9, through Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from Him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, Let him be a curse. That gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. That gospel is what we're supposed to take out into the world and preach. And when that gospel is obeyed, people believe it, and they are baptized into Christ. There is no other gospel. If an angel came and materialized right here in front of us and said something different contrary to what the Bible says, we're not to believe it. That's how powerful that message is. God has given us what we need. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, and beginning in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many he will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That word iniquity is a very important word. Because if you've ever looked it up, that Greek word means a condition of one without law, neither either because of ignorance or violation. That means you're working iniquity. You're doing things without law, without what is right, in their, whether it's ignorance or whether you're doing it on purpose. God has a law for us as Christians. Does Jesus have a law? Yes, He does. Jesus said in John chapter twelve and verse forty-eight, "He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge you, in the last day." So God is or Jesus has given us a law that we must follow. You say, "Well, the Bible doesn't call it a law." Well, yes, it does, because in Galatians chapter six and verse two it says, "Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfil what." The law of Christ. So Christ has a law that you and I are to follow. And we need to be obedient to that law. The question is, are we pleased with that law? Or are we displeased with God? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you need to be obedient to that gospel. That's where our hope is at. In obey in our obedience to His will. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 7, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's important, it's very important that we do what God wants us to do. That we live the way He wants us to live. That we teach and practice the things that He wants us to teach and practice. Don't be displeased with God's way. Accept God's way and be obedient to His will. And this morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row. We'll help you in any way that we can as we stand and sing.